so Whitman said, if I could write a poetry as democratic as a photographic plate, where everything has its place, we would begin to see what a democratic nation, a democratic language, a democratic way of being is going to feel like. Welcome to another episode of the Musk Book Club. I'm your host, David DeWayne. Today we are going to be discussing Democratic Vistas by Walt Whitman. We're very lucky today to be joined in conversation by Professor Ed Folsom from the University of Iowa. Professor Folsom co-edits the Whitman Academic Journal. He's the co-director of the online What Women Archive. And he's also part of the celebrated Iowa Writers Workshop, which for those of you who may not know, is one of the great creative writing programs on planet Earth. By any measure, Ed is uh, exactly the kind of person you want to be discussing Walt Whitman with. So please enjoy this conversation. How did Whitman become such an important figure for you? I guess the reason that I keep coming back to him and find him endlessly generative for me is that um, he never was taught to me. He was never put into a box like every other major American writer. And because of that, he's always felt uncircumscribed. It, I, there, there, there's no border around him. You know, you work out of those borders that uh, professors give you for understanding other authors, but they never quite go away. Whitman never had borders for me, and he has always been a, a, a borderless author, an author that has interest in every aspect and angle of American culture. He's taken me into studies of American photography, into the history of American baseball, into American uh, uh, policies uh, in the 19th century toward Native Americans, uh, American uh, racial uh, policies and histories. Uh, he's just uh, been endlessly dynamic that way. So I always think of him as being the, the, the writer that I eventually turned to and stayed with because I've never found the box large enough to contain him. What influences marked Whitman that led him to have such an expansive attitude? Well, in, in terms of, of biographically, he was raised by a kind of Tom Paine uh, liberal. He was of that first generation of Americans who really thought of themselves securely as Americans, as opposed to British who revolted against uh, Great Britain and, and developed America. He's born in 1819. So really of that, that first generation of securely American uh, thinkers and writers. And he's part of that group uh, uh, of that generation that began wondering about things like what would American literature come to be? What would this new thing called American literature be? And how would it be different from British literature and, uh, and, and all of the things written in English outside of this country. 
he became fascinated uh, along with people like Noah Webster with the idea of a developing American language and just how distinct and different an American language was going to become from British English and uh, Canadian English and the English that uh, was developing uh, in all of the colonial and post-colonial uh, uh, worlds around the, uh, the globe. Can I just interject a quick question? Why was it so important to, for Whitman and others to create a specifically American literature? I think it's uh, important to him because uh, he, along with a number of other writers, was trying to imagine not just what was going to be American about our literature, but what was going to be democratic about it. As the first democracy, virtually universally believed that uh, something like this democracy that this nation was based on and, and developed as was something that simply could not stand. It would fall of, of its own deficiencies. There would be minorities that uh, in, in, in a, an American democratic majority that would be continually uh, governed against. And so Whitman began thinking about this notion of what what a democratic literature would be and what democracy itself would be. The mouse edition of democratic vistas that, uh, that we're focusing on, it really is uh, that essay uh, written just after the Civil War, actually originally three essays that he, that he put together to, to make the little book, Democratic Vistas. They're really a series of essays about what democracy was coming to mean. And for Whitman, it was never something that ultimately would have a political or governmental definition to it. There's one point in Democratic Vistas where he says, um, we have frequently printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word, the real gist of which still sleeps, quite unawakened, notwithstanding the resonance and the many angry tempests out of which its syllables have come from pen or tongue. It is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. I love that notion that democracy itself has no definition yet because it's something we're only together discovering. And for Whitman, it meant discovering not just as a mode of governing a nation, but as a mode of living and thinking. What would it mean to think democratically, to exist democratically, to interact democratically? It would infuse our politics, yes, but it would infuse also our social interactions. It would infuse our notions of religion. It would infuse our whole philosophical outlook. It would have everything to do with the way we interact with everyone else in the culture to have everything to do with the way we dress and the way we talk and the way we orate and the, the way everything happens in this culture would be different. 
and our literature would have to be distinctly different as well. So I think one of Whitman's attempts was to construct an I, and you really hear it, uh, you can see it in the mouse edition of Song of Myself, right, where the I becomes this open, absorptive identity, an identity that, that is devoted to the idea of breaking down barriers between itself and others, to become as open as the planet is. What would it mean to, to be an I that did not discriminate? And uh, Whitman becomes our first writer ever to use the word discriminate in a pejorative sense. Right? We now think of it mostly as a, as a negative word in this culture. We have laws against discrimination. We have anti-discriminatory policies in all aspects of life now. And so much of what we find in our, uh, the world we, we're, we're living in is a slow discovery of ways that we have been discriminating without being aware of it. That's why I so often wrote his works quite directly to the reader who would be reading them a hundred years later or 200 years later because that reader would know more about democracy than Whitman could know in his own time. So it's not accidental that Whitman didn't necessarily have the same traction in his time that he does now. He was in some real sense writing for a future American audience that had a more advanced attitude towards democracy. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I think he, he was imagining uh, what a future culture of much more democratically thinking individuals would be. What do you think Whitman would see if he looked around America and American democracy today? Over the period of time since his own death, I think he would have celebrated the idea of women's suffrage. I think he would have celebrated the idea of uh, the civil rights era. And uh, I think he would have celebrated the idea of gay liberation and of gay marriage. I think all of, all of those breaking opens of previous discriminations, of discriminations that, uh, that, that the culture of his own time in many ways was blind to, and uh, that democratic forces at work in the culture opened the culture's eyes to those forms of discrimination. I think he would be distraught uh, by the way that American democracy seems to continually be a two-step forward, one-step back sort of process, that no opening of a democratic vista ever seems to be accompanied purely by a revelation and celebration, but instead seems to generate a reaction and a stepping backwards. I think he would have been distraught over what he saw with the past four years, that step back from a, a democratic outlook. He had a lot to say about the dangers of, of democracy as the Constitution had set it up. 
and he worried about it. He worried a lot about what could happen to the presidency of the country. And I think he would, looking over the last four years uh, and looking over uh, what we've all just been going through, he would be saying this, these are things that I've warned this culture about. And I think he'd be astounded that they were reappearing 130 years after his death. Can you tell us a little bit about what Whitman was like to be around? I think as a young man, he was a remarkably energetic person, even though a lot of people who are around Whitman thought of him as a relatively lazy newspaper man and editor. He'd go out for long walks every day, sort of invented uh, for America the idea that wandered the cities and, uh, and, and, and wrote uh, observations about uh, what he saw. He developed that idea of cataloging that became so important in his poetry and in his prose as well. You see it in Democratic Vistas as well as in Song of Myself where he, he just loves to open up his page and just allow impressions of the world as he conceives it to enter in. He once talked about his, his own writing of, and, and wondered if he could make it as open as a photographic plate was of the many cultural uh, uh, developments that occurred during his life, photography was one of them. Came in into America in 1839 after its invention by Louis Daguerre in, in France, uh, took off in this culture because it really fit with the whole democratic notion of individuality. America loved the idea that instead of only the wealthy getting uh, images of themselves, photography was allowing everyone to have images of themselves. Whitman looked at the photographic plate and he said, this finally is the art of democracy. We can see it visually in the photograph because the photograph does not discriminate. It's as non-discriminating as the sun is. Whatever it shines on appears. And so I looked at a photographic plate and where early critics of photography would look at a photograph and would say, well, you know, this is interesting, but thank God we have painters because painters know how to find beauty in the world and edit out all the junk and all the, the extraneous details and all those things that sort of ruin the, the picture, photographs don't know how to do that. Photographs just put onto the plate whatever's there in front of it. And Whitman said, exactly. That's why, why it's our democratic art, right? Because it reveals to us that beauty is not in selection and editing things out and discrimination. That was the always positive sense of discrimination, right? If you had discriminating tastes, you knew how to separate the beautiful from the ugly, the good from the bad, the fine tasting thing from the bad tasting thing. These were all positive values, but Whitman began to see discrimination itself as a negative value and a democratic way of thinking. And so for him, photographs taught that beauty, democratic beauty, was not 
editing and discrimination. Democratic beauty was fullness, completeness, everything having its place in the overall picture. And so Whitman said, if I could write a poetry as democratic as a photographic plate where everything has its place, we would begin to see the beginnings of what a democratic nation, a democratic language, a democratic way of being is going to feel like. Can you talk a, a little bit about the status of Whitman's scholarship today? Wow, well, it's huge for one thing. Um, I'm surrounded here by four walls that are nothing but books uh, about Whitman. When I began collecting these things back in the 80s, a pretty full collection of Whitman would have taken about one quarter of the space that relatively full collection of, of books about Whitman take now. The beauty of it is that it's, it's one of the most open areas of literary scholarship there is, again, because of Whitman's own capaciousness. You know, I, there, there, there seems to be nothing in American literature or culture that doesn't in some essential way connect to Whitman and his works and his interests. So recent books on Whitman have studied Whitman in relationship to the development of American dictionaries or Whitman in relationship to development of American military policies. Uh, Whitman and the Civil War becomes uh, something that people just keep returning to. Virtually every poet, if, if not every writer in America since Whitman's time has in some sense had to come to grips with Whitman, had to actually interact with Whitman. It's a phenomenon unlike any other literary phenomenon anywhere else in the world. This tradition where our writers continually talk back to Walt Whitman. They talk back to this, to this guy who talked forward to them and they argue with him they take him on, they, they complain about his naivete, they celebrate his amazing sense of what the future would be, so that there are endless books now that come out studying Whitman in relationship to the various writers and the various traditions that he's had an effect on and an influence on. There are recent books on Whitman in Spanish-speaking countries in German-speaking countries. Whitman in Poland just came out of a new book. Whitman in Italy, a brand new book, is just emerging on Whitman in the Italian literary tradition. One of the things I'm curious about is we associate Whitman with images of nature, but you have a vision of Whitman as being an early urban writer. Can you talk a little bit about that? America was quickly becoming the first truly urban country, and in a way he became our first urban poet, the first writer who began to open up for American writers what it would feel like to actually be a writer in a city, as opposed to a writer who had to retreat to nature to find his inspiration. And so he became an urban poet, and there's something that 
I always like to call urban affection in Whitman. That is a sense of what it feels like to live in a city where you're encountering people every day and having physical contact with other bodies that you would encounter for a moment and never see again, but might live in your imagination for a long time. Whitman used to walk around carrying these little notebooks in his pocket all the time. He was uh, our, our first writer in transit. He loved to hop on the omnibus and watch what was going on around him. And he'd pull out the notebook and his pencil and he'd just start jotting down notes. And you can still look at some of these notebooks that still exist and see how the writing is jarred by the, the bumpiness of the omnibus as it's going up and down Broadway. Uh, opening those pages to that urban world around him and beginning to create the very first urban catalog. Professor Folsom, thank you so much. This is Brian uh, Chappelle, the, the uh, editor. Um, I, I want to turn our attention now to some questions in the in the chat for you. Uh, one came from uh, Scott Hoffmeister way back in the beginning when you were talking about how you were bouncing around in your undergraduate classes and never landing with Whitman. So he was wondering about what might have caused that dearth of direct attention on Whitman, but maybe that could also be a way to ask the question about Whitman in the classroom today in the 21st century. I wonder what your insights are about, about that. I'm a high school teacher, so Whitman is everywhere, but I wonder at, at the undergraduate and graduate level, what are you seeing? Yeah, what I'm seeing at the undergraduate and graduate level are a real fascination with Whitman as a generative force. Uh, uh, I teach at the University of Iowa, which is the home of the Writers' Workshop and the Nonfiction Writing Program, and uh, the Playwrights Workshop, and you know, it's just a community that, that's an incredibly active writing community. And teaching here is a is and has been a, a a real joy because I tend to have a lot of writers in my class. So I tend to have a lot of poets in my class, and uh, they love to study Whitman because we have so much access to the drafts of Whitman's poetry. And you can find out, uh, I co-edit the uh, Walt Whitman massive online resource. And I encourage you and all your readers to go, you can call up all known Whitman notebooks and you can see scans of those notebooks and just struggle with his handwriting on your own as well as seeing transcriptions of, of the notebooks. And I have students who are who, who just find it an amazing gift to be able not to view Song of Myself as a classic finished work of art, but rather to be able to access it again as a work in process, a work where you can see the little jotted beginnings of it that Whitman begins to write as he's sitting on an omnibus or as he's walking down the street or sitting in a print shop and begins jotting the ideas down and you can see him begin to develop what becomes that long Whitman line. And you can begin to see all of that emerge in the notebooks. And my own students who are so 
adept at keeping notebooks themselves and, uh, and doing so much revision on their work, love the idea of seeing Whitman as a kind of open workshop. Graduate students uh, have always enjoyed really arguing with Whitman because he's a, he's a writer who sets up arguments with the future and encourages writers and readers to argue with him. He even says in Democratic Vistas, right? He defines what that new democratic reader is going to be, he says. And that is the democratic reader, unlike the reader in aristocracies and monarchies, where authority, that word authority, where we get the word author, and the idea that the author is the authority and the reader is simply the subject into which the author pours into the reader's eyes and ears the knowledge. Whitman says, forget that. That's not democratic reading. Democratic reading is where the reader is as much the authority as the author. And no work of art, no piece of literature is ever completed until the reader wrestles with it, argues with it, struggles with it, takes it apart, puts it back together in new ways. And Whitman was always doing that with his own writing. You know, he kept revising Leaves of Grass that went through six very different editions where he kept messing with the poems, rewriting them, changing the titles, rearranging them, putting some into clusters, adding new ones, dropping some out, melding two together. Uh, he, 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 he never could stop messing with the poems and arguing with his own writing, and it's continued ever since. And so I think one of the major critical arguments going on now, and I, I face it every time I teach Whitman at the at the graduate level and encourage my students to really engage Whitman on the issue of race in America. He's filled with racist ideas and thoughts, but the interesting thing is he knows it and he doesn't like that about himself, even though he can't rise above it in his own time. But he can imagine a voice that rises above it. And that's the voice that you begin to hear in Song of Myself. Thank you so much. This, that was a wonderful response. The next question comes from Trevor. All right, so uh, obviously democracy is a very important concept of Whitman and being that he was you know, kind of in the beginning of the democracy, could you elaborate a little bit on what he thought of what the perils of democracy could be and maybe like how some of that has played out even up to our current time? Sure. I mean, that's a great question and a huge question, but I think when, when Whitman imagined the eye of his poem, that open absorptive eye that was just going to, to keep getting larger and larger, he was basing it on this concept uh, that he had of the American nation, which in his own time, uh, as he was growing up in the 1840s and 1850s, the nation was expanding. It was expanding 
geographically, it was expanding in terms of population. It was absorbing new immigrant populations. It was figuring out how to deal with native populations that already existed on the continent. It was fighting wars of various sorts against both natives and against colonial powers that wanted to dominate the land. The concept of manifest destiny was very much in Whitman's mind, that idea that America was destined to occupy this continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And he had in his mind this eye that was going to be as expansive and open as the nation itself was an eye that could absorb lots of different influences, could absorb all religions and not have to devote itself to one, that could absorb different cultural backgrounds, that could welcome immigrants, that could turn America into a nation of nations, as he called it. So that concept he had of this endlessly expanding and yet always staying unified in its diversity, this nation that would always remain the United States, just as every individual, every one of us is a United States of being. You know, we all have multiple personalities and thoughts and approaches and contradictory ideas. We all live with these but we all have still a unified single identity. And Whitman saw the I he was creating as related to that American identity, that unified United States. So when he faced the Civil War and the culture faced the Civil War, it attacked the very heart, the essential heart of what he saw the self and the nation to be. Something that could contain contradictions. Suddenly with the Civil War, American history was entering a period where the nation had decided it could not remain united it was going to divide. And once it started to divide between North and South, who knew where that was gonna stop? If the, the rebellion had won, if the Confederacy had won, would there then be a, a new Western country that would emerge out of the, the Western uh, territories? Whitman, never saw it as a war of secession. He always saw it as a war to preserve the union. And for him, it was kind of mystical because it had something to do with his whole concept of the self. All of us had to be democratic selves, large enough to contain contradictions. Of course, his famous line and song of myself, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. That's the self for Whitman. And so when he saw it beginning to divide up, no longer being able to adhere, that's when for Whitman, the true test of democracy came. It's why for Whitman, Abraham Lincoln became the great president. 
the unifier, the president who managed to be able to maintain a United States. And it's why Whitman, when he writes Democratic Vistas, and when you read Democratic Vistas, you're really reading a reconstruction document. Whitman trying to figure out how the United States was going to reconstruct itself, but also trying to figure out if in fact, once it had come apart, the United States ever really could fully go back together again. And how many times have we all read in the past 10 years that this country is fighting the civil war over and over and over again? I think Shaista has a question ready. I was gonna say you actually kind of touch on what I'm asking. Um, so I was saying in light of what you described as his worry about the type of the de democracy the constitution allowed, do you feel that he was idealistic or realistic, especially in light of these repeated historical cycles that we're seeing within the US? Yeah, I think ultimately uh, Whitman was idealistic, even though he never lost that grittiness of the reality around him and was always anxious to confront it and record it. I think that's exactly the reason that my American realist professor in undergraduate school didn't want to teach Whitman with the realists because he was too much of an idealist and why my American romantics professor didn't want to teach him with the romantics because he was too much of a realist, too gritty to really be with the transcendentalists with the really transcendental notions and ideas. And that's, that's when you read democratic vistas, I mean, just think about that term, democratic vistas. That title has become so much more well-known than the essay itself because the essay is a difficult piece of writing and it's a difficult thing to wrestle with you really do have to wrestle with that writing. But just the title itself captures something about this democracy. And that is that it's always pushing toward this idealized future when peace is finally accomplished because justice is accomplished, right? That notion of equality equality of justice, equality of opportunity, equality at, at that fundamental level, at that universal democratic level that Whitman never saw in his own lifetime. You'll see when you read Democratic Vistas that he starts out that essay by looking at the United States as if he were a physician looking at a patient with a deep and dark disease. I mean, he's looking there and, and looking around him at a country that seems to him in every way to have failed to live up to what it was founded on. But that's the irony of American life and American history, right? We've got this founding document expressed in the Declaration of Independence that sets up this ideal of justice and equality and we have a constitution that sets up this rule of law 
that is to give us this justice and equality. And then we're cast into this history that always disappoints us, inevitably disappoints us because we never achieve it. Maybe we feel at times like we've made a few steps toward it. But then, as I said earlier, we always have those discomforting realizations that we fall back again and that the so many of the discriminations and biases and prejudices that we thought had been largely overcome in the culture suddenly just resurface in ways that remind us they've never gone away. And Whitman is so aware of that. That's what makes Democratic Vistas for me so great. He's so aware of how awful the culture is that he's living in. But he keeps looking on the horizon. And what he sees there are democratic vistas. That is something that he can't see clearly. He can see the ideal clearly, but there's no map to get us there. That leads to our, our final question, where we can kind of come full circle about the democratic subject, the individual in contemporary society. Sam, are you ready to take it away? So my question is, uh, you know, what would Whitman think of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the erosion of privacy that those tools enable, uh, juxtaposed with the explosion of democracy that these platforms also enable? I, I think you've put your finger on it, Sam. I think he would have exactly the, the, the same qualms about it that we have. And I think he would also see the amazing possibilities of it. I think he would see the, the amazing possibilities of everyone having equal access. If everyone can gain equal access to the internet of everyone having equal access to that vast array, open, undiscriminated array of stuff that's out there. But he would also see exactly the dangers we see in that, in how it, it, it can be uh, marshaled and used to create division, separation, and exactly the opposite of what that vastness should be providing. It should be opening the self instead of closing it. And Whitman always understood that, that there was, there was a way in which all religions taken together, if we can begin to embrace them all, we open out to the largest questions and the most amazing new knowledge. But any single one, any single religion begins to build walls between you and the rest of the world and begins to isolate you and put you into a cult of some sort. And this for Whitman was always a danger. One final thing I'll say about Whitman and the internet, and we can end on this because it has everything to do with mouse books and what you guys are doing with 
the whole concept of mouse books. Whitman loved the idea as mouse editions reminds us of what it means to hold a book in your hand, to move your fingers over the book. Whitman set up his entire book, Leaves of Grass, with the, uh, on the basis of the idea that the reader would be literally, physically embodied. And Whitman will say in Leaves of Grass, ah, I know you're up there. I knew you would be there. It may be a hundred years after I'm dead, but I knew we'd still be communicating. You'd be there. I love how your fingers drowse me. I love feeling your breath upon me like dew. You know, he, he has these erotic moments in his work that create this sense of an actual living physical body of a reader encountering the body of a book that is the physical embodiment of Whitman whose physical body has died into the physical book. Okay, thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Huge thanks to Professor Folsom for giving so generously of his time today. Please check out the digital Walt Women archive if you haven't already. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, mouse books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois, who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again and please join us next week.